Hi, I'm John Eno. And I'm Ivalice Crespo. Welcome to the Reed Smith Podcast, Inclusivity Included, powerful personal stories. In each episode of this podcast, our guests will share their personal stories, passions, and challenges, past and present, all with a goal of bringing people together and learning more about others. You might be surprised by what we all have in common, inclusivity included. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while for me. I was on vacation for a couple of weeks. Really appreciated the time off, but really glad to be back with everyone. I wanted to introduce our guest today. Uh, and the background is at Reed Smith, we held a mental health summit back in May that was virtual, but we had just, we covered so many important topics. As you may know, Reed Smith is very much focused on wellness. We have a whole wellness program, and within our uh, DEI program, we have our mental health task force that really focuses so much on the mental health of our talent. And in particular, at this summit, we had a panel in particular on um, kind of the intersection between diversity, DEI programs, and and mental health issues as, as well. My my take is that you know, mental health programs, it's really not a one-size-fits-all that we see so much with, in particular, of our diverse talent, some of the unique challenges that they face. And traditional diversity programs, you know, always going to focus on the advancement, promotion, and recruiting of diverse talent, but we don't spend as much attention on the wellness of, of our diverse talent, which is you know a critical component. So I'm really hopeful that this the focus and our and our renewed focus is to you know focus not only on advancement, promotion, recruiting, but let's really spend some time in our all of our diversity programs, DEI programs, on wellness and, and mental health of, of our people. So we're very fortunate that we have today our, as our guest is Dr. Sherry Wang. Sherry was a panelist, in fact, at our at our mental health summit on the panel that took this intersection between DEI and mental health. A little bit of background: Sherry is an associate professor for counseling psychology at Santa Clara University. Among other things, she's a licensed psychologist and a lot of other great things. But uh, I'm sure we'll get into that very soon. So, Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, John. Yeah, it's it's great, and we just, there's there's so much that we we covered before, and we want to make sure that we we, we educate our our audience. Uh, by the way, uh, for folks in our audience, uh, we just recently published a report from our mental health summit, which is available online on social media and the like. There should be a link to it in the uh, episode's notes for today. But it, it, it's a pretty comprehensive summary of all the various panels and topics that we talked about. You know, we want to make sure we're getting the word out to as many people as possible. So if you can, take a look, check it out, that summary report of, you know, in particular, some of the uh, mental health issues that people in the legal profession faced. So Sherry, you know, you've done some really, really remarkable work focused on some of the factors that disproportionately impact the mental and physical health of diverse individuals. So um, share with our audience a little bit about your background and the focus of your studies and really what inspired you to, to get involved in this work. Sure. Thank you. Well, it's so good to be back here and to be sharing a little bit about this. I, I always think, you know, with any presentation and, and any talk, you want to know, like, who is the speaker? Why, why you? Right. What is your background? And so I'm happy to share a little bit about that. You know, I am a licensed counseling psychologist. I'm a professor of counseling psychology. I teach a master's level counseling program. 
I identify also as an anti-racist educator, um, and I am a researcher that focuses on on ethnic minority mental health and specifically looking at health disparities amongst BIPOC people of color. And really my, my purpose in doing that, looking at these disparities is not to say, look, look how badly <laughs> communities of color are doing. It's to highlight then, what do we do about that? And, and what are the reasons for that? Because so much of this work, uh, depending on the lens that, that you're using to study marginalized communities, historically underrepresented communities, oftentimes unintentionally put the blame right on the communities that are suffering to say, well, if you only picked yourself up by the bootstrap, you wouldn't be in this situation. If you only worked harder, X, Y, Z. And, and that's really not the answer. Um, the answer really is in looking at the systemic factors that over time have contributed to people who are marginalized being even more marginalized. And so my training actually comes from my background as an immigrant myself. I'm Taiwanese American and I uh, studied, my, my graduate training specialization was on immigrant and refugee mental health. I really wanted to do trauma-informed work with my communities and to really think about the ways in which my privilege has afforded me as well as cost me, you know, uh, opportunities and to be able to do that in a way that really then advocates for the diversity um, within Asian American communities and Latino communities. And so that really was where I started. And then my work really started focusing on racial justice dialogues. Um, how do we have these difficult conversations about racism, about uh, privilege, about white privilege? And in that way, um, I knew when I, when I graduated, I needed to go somewhere to make a difference. I moved to the deep south in Mississippi um, for my first tenure track professor job. And, and that was where my work then really shifted in looking at then access to healthcare, you know, particularly for African-American communities, thinking about then HIV in particular as really not only the most fascinating, I think, disease there is, but, but also in terms of all the ways in which oppression is, is intersectional with this one disease that really criminalizes people, not only, not only at that level, but then even without the legal component. Uh, the social punishment that people experience across a number of identities from sexual orientation to sexual behavior to religion to race and then to also what that means for folks living in rural regions of the country. So really in, in all of these ways I, I now identify as as really somebody that does ethnic minority mental health work because it's really focused on African-American mental health, Latino, Asian immigrant refugee mental health, and my clinical work has been with Native communities as well. So I'm back actually in California, my home state, and that's maybe part of what we'll be talking about too in terms of self-care, that as meaningful as it was to do the work that I was doing in the Deep South, as an Asian American person, I really just did not find a space where I could fit in personally, right? It, it, it's such a black and white context. People would be like, what are you? Are you Asian? Are you Mexican? What is this yellow caramel color that you have? And and for me, raising mixed kids. My partner is, um, my partner is Latino. So, you know, thinking about kind of how they would grow up and how exoticized they would be treated. I really felt like I needed to be back in uh, a community where there was the kind of diversity I needed, like access to ethnic foods, <laughs> direct flights to my home country to see my family. And so th those are some of the reasons that prompted me to leave, but then to continue to do this work now in a place that also nourishes my soul. Mm -hmm. Well, for us here in California, we welcome you back to be back here in this diverse state we have. So you'd mentioned, you know, for example, for people of color, you know, the, the various communities, you know, access to health care is certainly a, a significant issue. 
What are some of the reasons that lead to you know, some of the inequalities in the healthcare systems for uh, persons of color, LGBT, people with disabilities, et cetera? Sure. I mean, the biggest one is really lack of access, right? I think there's lots of research that highlights stigma. And then I will get to that in a little bit. But I think the most important thing is really about all the ways in which there are barriers to care because it is just not available to people geographically, perhaps financially. That's really the biggest issue. And then really then when it's available, it does not actually mean it is accessible. So so just because it's there doesn't actually mean people feel like it's tailored for me or that people who look like me or who have my experiences are going to be welcome to be there. And, and so, you know, some of that really is also mental health literacy, that we are not a society that values or prioritizes mental health and that teaches people how crucial it is. And so not knowing where to search or how to begin to even access mental health care, even if you have the means to be able to, to do that. And then you get to the stigma part of like, if you do, if you're interested, the, the stigma, the judgment, not those, not just of those around you and thinking about like, oh, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, what, what, why are you going to go seek mental health? Are you broken? How long will it take for you to get fixed? You know, these very, in some ways, superficial questions that are treating it like an ends to a means as opposed to one that is focused on well-being, right? Mental health care doesn't necessarily mean it has to be something People go to only in times of crises to fix, right? Uh, something like a bandaid approach. It can also be to enhance your well-being, to have better quality of life, and of course, that's a privilege too, right? To be able to then access resources and, and to to take the time and energy and focus on being a better person. All of that, though, is really contingent too, right? On on your own attitudes and your own shame, perhaps, in how you think of it. Do you think about it as a self-care that you are entitled to have, right? And do you think about it as like exercise or going to doctors for preventative checkup? Or do you think about it as something is wrong with me, I'm broken and, and I need to do that? And then even when you do want to do that, gosh, for people of color, for, for marginalized individuals and communities, finding a provider that is a cultural match is very difficult. And I'm talking about cultural match as opposed to just ethnic match right, for um, people of color, because you may not necessarily want somebody that is an ethnic match because of stigma. You don't want to perhaps be judged, right, because you want to see somebody who is an outsider of your group rather than an insider. But really, if you want to see somebody who is an insider, that's very difficult because, you know, there's just not that many of us BIPOC clinicians also because of all the things that we see in our society with racism impacting mobility, right? And people being able to access institutions of higher education as well. So that's the challenge too of, are there resources um, for people to be able to access healthcare? And then when there are, what are the network limitations, for example, right? Oftentimes companies will have, may have insurance coverage, but it has to be in network. It has to be with certain groups and that those groups may not have the exact person or, or the demographic or background or specialty of the people that you really need to see or want to see to be able to feel like that is a safe person for me. What I'm hearing also is that there's the lack of resources, right? the lack of access. And so if you're in an underprivileged community, that you know that would be an issue because you don't have clinicians or, or psychologists or practitioners that culturally you, know, you identify with, or because the resources just aren't there. 
for certain communities um, or because the insurance programs aren't there. But it's interesting that in addition that, for example, Asians are 51% less likely to use mental health services than whites. Latinos, Latinx are 25% less likely to use mental health services than whites. And Blacks, African-Americans are 21% less likely. So in addition to kind of the, the barriers to the healthcare you know, opportunities or system, what, what, what kind of specifically, as you drill down into some of those communities, are the reasons why we're not seeking or not taking the opportunities of seeking mental health care? Sure. So, so in addition, right, to, to those kind of systemic barriers, right, of, of resource, right, in and of itself, there's also racism in, in terms of, you know, working with a provider that just does not get you and may even shame you um, because they don't understand your culture. And we actually do know that even when communities of color go to therapy, that the dropout rate is very high because there's, there isn't a sense of cultural competency or perceived even cultural competency or, or adequacy of the person you're working with to, to understand you. And so if you're already feeling really low and you're going to, to talk to somebody who really, if you think about therapy, you're going to share your deepest, darkest stuff, right? The things that you don't even tell your partner, your friends, your family, it's stuff that you reserve for somebody that you're really trusting. And, and to have that kind of intimacy with somebody then who does not get you or who may say things to you that are so culturally incompatible or shaming, gosh, that not only just closes down a person from wanting to try therapy again, it may close them down to the healthcare system in general, feeling like I can't trust healthcare providers. So, so even just getting folks in the door, I think is, is not enough. It's also how do we retain, um, you know, people of color in therapy, you know, how do we make sure that all clinicians are culturally competent, right? Because we do know people of color, certainly then will be able to speak as insiders and understand, for example, and talk about racism, uh, we'll be able to respond in ways that are going to be culturally responsive. How do we train white clinicians to be able to be cautious of their own fragility or reactivity? when a client is talking about racism and saying, you know, I hate white people right now. And to be able to sit and hold that rather than being like, but what about me? Mm. Or what about the good white people? Things like that, where then a person of color or, or even any person who is in a marginalized position feels like I have to protect the person in power and their feelings and their fragility. No, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of your, your research, you know, you kind of identifying these systemic barriers, right. And, in fact, I know you said it kind of creates this dangerous cycle. And so in the end, these disparities kind of compound and reinforce themselves. What, what can we do? What, 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 what are the kind of first steps to try to break this dangerous cycle? I'm going to go right to the top, which is funding and policies. <laughs> that if we look at in the highest level of the system, right, when it comes to barriers to mental health care, if there were funding for everyone to be able to access mental health services, and I'm talking about culturally sensitive, linguistically sensitive mental health care services, and if there were policies in place that normalized and made treatment available, accessible, and affordable, then really stigma wouldn't be as much of an issue, right? It, it would really just be, do I want to do this or not? And I would also say, too, that, you know, Western Eurocentric models of, of mental health are also very different for many communities of color. Just thinking um, about for, for Eastern traditions, for example, right, that the kind of mind-body connection, that 
there's a stereotype and, and an assumption and, and it's kind of a mainstream argument that Asian Americans don't seek mental health because it is shaming um, and, and because there is the stigma, right? That, that something is wrong with you. Certainly there's that. But if you think about kind of traditional indigenous, you know, treatment and healing practices that were done or that are being done in Asian countries, for example, and, and other cultures and countries, it's very holistic that mental health care is part and embedded in physical health care. But in Western, you know, kind of traditions, we separate that. There's the physical health and then there's the psychological mental health. And so, you know, thinking about, you know, traditional forms of healing too, like acupuncture, right? Or in thinking about going to sweat lodges for Native American communities, like there's so many indigenous practices that we don't recognize in this country and in this context as legitimate sources of healing. It, it only has to be Western. And there are so many biases in that, because if you think about therapy in and of itself, it actually has a very Christian, Catholic, actually, underpinning. There's some, some research that has, has highlighted that, that there's a confessional aspect to it, right? You go in, you have to be very verbal, first of all, right? So, so therapy is not culturally neutral, right? It, it is really best and ideal for folks who are able to be very emotionally expressive and verbally expressive for quote unquote talk therapy, because it's a confessional experience where the assumption is if you talk it out, it will be cathartic for you. But for cultures where it's more solution-based or problem-oriented you know, and problem-solving, that may not actually be helpful. And so you know, I think those are some things to think about in terms of cultural sensitivity, even at the very foundational level of what we're funding and what we, what we deem to be the best or the evidence-based types of care that for many other countries and cultures, that may be a way, but it's certainly not the only way. So interesting. So interesting. The, that separation between the, the physical and the mental. In my own coaching, I, I really try to emphasize the interconnectivity of everything. You know, if you're not, if your emotions aren't right, if you're physically not right, you know, your nutrition is not right, how that all affects, shows up in work. Right? And mm -hmm. it just, you know, when people start to realize it's all, all connected, you know, that's, that's so important. Not to so, mention the spiritual component too, I would absolutely. add too, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can certainly say the spiritual part of all of it um, is hopefully we all can find our spirituality, you know, no matter what your religion may be, but just to find, you know, your your, your spiritual self. So thinking about, you know, you're talking about the funding and, and things like that, but, you know, what role can allies, let's think about others that can really help deconstruct these barriers. You know, what, what can I do? As a person, what what can our our organization mm -hmm. do specifically beyond just you know changing the, the the healthcare system overall? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, I have so much respect for those who understand and practice the law because of the power in, in which they hold for knowing how the system works. Right. I, I really think about knowing the law, knowing the legal legal system as as then knowing the rules of the game. And if you don't know the rules of the game, you don't even know what your options are. You don't even know how to move forward. And, and, you know, I'll talk about the Asian American community, for example, right? There's a stereotype and an assumption that, that Asian Americans are, you know, quiet, submissive, deferential, put their head down. It, it's a character of us. And I, I talk about it as a caricature because those are descriptors and characteristics that others have imposed on us, right? Uh, outsiders looking in at us rather than what we would call ourselves. And those are terms, I think, that would be used to refer to new immigrants 
anywhere and everywhere. And that is also the, 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 the burden that Asian Americans carry in that we are always treated as perpetual foreigners, right? Like, where are you from? Where are you really from? Um, the stereotype of us is that we, we're new rather than rightful citizens who belong in the U.S. just as much as any other person. So the role of the legal system is really important here. And this is what I've been talking a lot about, actually, is, is that when we think about, you know, why the, there's a stereotype, it, first of all, does have to do with racism, right, of, of using a white supremacist lens to look at Asians as outsiders. And then there's this other part of, well, you know, our, our ancestors in this country did not know the rules of the game. Now, if they do, and looking at subsequent generations, if you look at the younger generation of Asian Americans, we speak up, we're loud, <laughs> we, we protest, right? We do these things that people think about it as acculturation, which is really about culture adaptation. Like, oh, you're more Americanized, you speak up. And I think that is part of it, but I, I don't think that's all of it. I think a large part of it is knowing how the system works, knowing where you can have voice knowing what the rules of the games are. And so I, I do think that the legal profession, the you know, law, the, the discipline of law can, is really powerful in letting people know what their rights are, what they're, what they're obligated to. And, you know, in thinking about that, when you know you have options, when you know you have rights, when you know what you're entitled to, you inevitably become more empowered because there's agency in being able to make choices rather than to be powerless. So I think when a lawyer or when a, anybody that's not a counseling psychologist, right, or, or a practicing psychologist, when any professional says, hey, have you thought about, you know, counseling? Have you thought about taking up self-care for yourself? Because it can be powerful in these ways. And really being able to vouch for that and introduce that, I think it can be really powerful because it is using your expertise and your legitimacy and your power as an expert in your area to really then give credibility to a discipline that is often stigmatized, actually, right? Our, our field, my field of psychology, of providing therapy is often looked at as a last resort when everything else has failed, right? And people are referred from the ER because of somatic complaints. They're, they have physical pains, they have backaches, they have headaches and GI issues. And it really, they couldn't find anything physical. It's really because of the psychological then people come to us. But we're like this last ditch effort because of the stigma and because we don't have a lot of credibility. And so when other professions like the law profession, which everybody respects, uh, says, you know, actually seeking counseling services can be really helpful in this way. And I do think that that can be offered in a way that isn't just you have to buy into therapy. It can be encouraging people to do it even as an ends to a means, right? That going to therapy, uh, can be a way to track your progress, for example, of baseline where you were to where you are. And that could be helpful in the court of law, perhaps, right, for documentation purposes. That could be helpful in terms of asking for accommodations down the line, right, to see then how things have, have fared for you after maybe something traumatic happened, or in demonstrating that there's a need because of neurological diversity. I think those are things that people don't think about unless outsiders really then are willing to put themselves on the line to really say, here's how helpful counseling can be. Rather than, you may want to consider therapy because I think you're crazy, which is what people often assume that recommendation is for. So I know we talked on our previous uh, panel, just thinking about you know our diverse population. And we as whether it's people of color, LGBT, persons with disability, 
we suffer from microaggressions, over racism, so many things that it just has a cumulative effect on your overall, you know, mental health. And, and it's, you know, it's, as much as it's challenging trying to get promoted and get a raise and all those kind of things, it's just the, that ongoing burden of, of, you know, laying on top of you, on top of everything else. So thinking about kind of that population of, of talent, what, what are some of the other kind of challenges in addressing this? Because, you know, how can we uniquely I know, I know you you addressed in terms of clinical or, or therapy, you know, specific, but how can we address some of the challenges specifically for our diverse population to address some of these issues, to let them know they have support? And as I say, it's not one size fits all. And, and how can we make sure that we're serving that community? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And you're right. It's not one size um, fits all, right? Because every culture is different, even within an organization. And yet I think for diverse communities, right, for diverse staff, it really boils down to, do I feel valued at my workplace? Can I bring all of myself into the space? And and when I say, can I bring all of myself into the space? It, it isn't like, you know, showing up naked, right? <laughs> like, like, can I do inappropriate things? It really is about like, can I, can I show up in all of the ways that um, I would without having to hide these cultural parts of myself. Um, and, and I think that, that that is a huge part of why people of color have to put on a mask to go to work at times. And that when they are, there's so few of, of us, right? Um, and we represent a diversity. Um, that representation can, can turn into tokenization, right? Because representation, while the intention can be good and while there are certainly positive effects of seeing people who look like us in positions of power. If you think about the person who is having to represent, they didn't choose to want to represent. It means that everything they do is under the spotlight, right? That it doesn't just speak for themselves. It's if you do badly, you make the black community look bad. You make the Latinx community look bad, right? Um, if you do well, good, you should, because th- there's a pressure. I, I got to look good so I can bring more folks that look like me in, but I also can't mess up. Um, and so there's a lot of, of pressure for people of color and, and that's not just people of color, but for people who are having to represent an area of diversity that just is not there and they're so few. And so then they really become then the spokesman for it without even wanting to. So then there's also the emotional labor then of having to teach people, of having to call out as well as call in, you know, those microaggressions um, and having to do this work that really, I think people consider it to be quote unquote soft skills, right? I mean, this is work that is not being financially rewarded and it is work that is very, very laborious and draining um, and actually reduces a person's ability to be productive. And then the sad part is oftentimes then people of color then get celebrated for being resilient. When, if you think about it, nobody wants to be resilient. Like, why would I want to be resilient? Because it means I've had to be. Um, so I, I think it really is about helping people feel valued. And when people feel like I can bring all of myself, you see all of these different parts of me. Um, and so how are these different parts of me able to be supported, right? From my family to my cultural heritage to my um, my hobbies. People then are, are going to be doing better as a whole, not just as a worker, but but as a human being. 
I love that. It's a, I had this aha moment because, you know, that's certainly at Reed Smith, we, we try to encourage people to, you know, express themselves, be be themselves, bring their authentic selves to to the to the workplace, and through our um, our ERGs or what we call them business inclusion groups. You know, having some support, having some community, feeling like there are others that you could you know rely on. But the the, the missing link is having those mental health professionals to help you help you through that journey, right? And to be on staff and, and, or and the like to really you know fill in that piece because we're not licensed therapists or, or, or psychologists. So to be able to fit that missing piece of the puzzle to help people with that ultimate goal is, is just fantastic. So it's a little bit of preview to like, I, I guess what I wanted to ask is, so what do you think in terms of the future, you know, for organizations like ours with respect to, you know, how can programming evolve to support um, the mental health of our, our population? I think you've already named it really early on, actually, John, that, that even this podcast, what we're talking about, we're not just talking about mental illness or distress, right? We're also talking about mental wellness. We're talking about well-being so that when we talk about psychological health, we're talking about health, <laughs> right? And it's really about helping people be even better. Uh, and that when people are in distress, that we certainly want people to grow better from that too. Uh, but we want to support well-being and not just pain and sadness and sickness. We we aren't just giving people extra vacation days or leaves because of sickness or because they're going to the doctor's visits. We are celebrating mental health days. Take a day off and go do something fun, <laughs> play hooky, you know. But but everybody gets one of those days like that. And being able to talk about these things, and I think being able to talk about all of these isms from racism, sexism, classism heterosexism, right? All of these things and recognizing that it is a system that we are all fighting, right? That, that there is not one individual who's responsible for all of these things, uh, that we're all victims of, of oppression. And so how do we then help uh, support each other and advocate for each other with the powers that we do have, right? Because some of us have more power than others in certain situations, in certain identities. It, it is it is a very fluid process, right? And, and not constant. Um, and, and so in that way, then how do we advocate for each other so that we can all grow better um, and, and stronger together? I, I think that's going to be really the focus rather than how do we help people be more, well, be, be in less distress. Thank you. You're so inspiring and hope our listeners were able to gather a lot from this as we see the, you know, the new future for, for organizations like ours. So Dr. Wang, Sherry, thank you for coming in and sharing all your insights with our audience you know, I, I really believe this is an area that we really, really need to focus a lot more on. And all your work is, is certainly so illuminative to what, uh, what we need to do. So thank you again for coming in. Thank you. Inclusivity Included is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and ReedSmith.com. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.